Hi, everybody, and welcome back to yet another cracking installment of the Map Round Show. This is the Built in California series. If you haven't been uh, following along, welcome, 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 welcome. Uh, I'm connecting you, my audience, uh, around the world to incredible founders just doing amazing things. Um, and the gentleman with us today, his, he is the founder and CEO of graft.com. Uh, he is Adam Oliner. Welcome to the show. Thanks, man. Good to be here. Oh, the privilege is all mine, man. Uh, good to have you here. Um, so, Adam, uh, you're doing some amazing things uh, with AI. You are on a mission uh, to give small businesses democratized access to AI and all this kind of cool stuff. So lots to get into. Um, but I uh, would love if you would take the reins from me and just give us, uh, give our audience uh, around the world just the elevator pitch, the backstory, because you this isn't your first radio. Uh, you come from MIT. There's lots of amazing background stuff. So why don't you kick us off, um, introduce yourself, and uh, we can take it from there. Sure thing. So yeah, I uh, will start back at MIT. So I started my career sort of on an academic track. So undergrad and master's at MIT, where I, I double majored in math and computer science. Uh, came out west uh, to California, um, therefore to fit in the theme of the show. Uh to uh, do grad school at Stanford, where I did a, a PhD in computer science, um, where I also met a couple of my uh, eventual co-founders, uh, both at Graft and at my previous company. Um, went to do a postdoc at Berkeley uh, in the AMP Lab, uh, where I was working with Jan Stoika. Um, this was around the time that uh, the Spark and Databricks folks and others were there. Um, so it was a really exciting time to be in that lab and, and work with all those amazing people. Um, my work at the lab there was around uh, mobile battery diagnosis. So it would tell you not just what's using up your smartphone battery, but whether that's normal, what you can do about it. Basically, much more detailed and actionable diagnoses than what phones today even still provide. That met with a lot of popular success. Um, happy to, to go into that story. It was sort of a surprise success. Um, and so ended up reaching out to uh, a friend from the Stanford PhD to, to co-found a company around that with. Um, that was great. Uh, we ended up getting scooped up by Splunk. Um, we, we had sort of, this was a consumer facing battery analytics app. And we realized pretty quickly that making our fortunes 70 cents at a time was not really how we wanted to do it. Um, and our backgrounds were more in sort of big systems, like data centers and supercomputers anyway. Mm. Um, so we had started to reach out to companies to try to pivot in that direction. And that was when, when Splunk grabbed us up. Um, and uh, at Splunk, you know, we built the machine learning organization up from scratch. Uh, I was the, along with my co-founder, um, Jacob was the first ML engineering related hires at the company. Um, Spent four and a half years there, had an amazing experience, uh, learned a ton that I'm now leveraging at Graft. Um, and then most recently, prior to Graft, was head of machine learning at Slack. And this is kind of where the, the sort of Graft-specific seeds were sown. Um, I think in a lot of ways, Slack, Slack's an extraordinary company. I had an amazing time there and got to work with some great people. Um, I think it is like a lot of companies in that they have lots of really interesting unstructured data. And they had a machine learning team, but it was fairly small. And so I think that's a pretty typical experience for sort of mid-market or, or small to large companies that are uh, technically leaning. They'll have a machine learning team, but it's almost always understaffed. And so we were faced with this choice of, you know, if we could build one project, what's that thing that we would build that would have maximum leverage around the company? 
And there were a number of use cases that that Slack was either had in production that they wanted to make better or that they were interested in launching. And so we started to look around at what the world's top AI companies were doing. So think uh, Meta, Google, Amazon. And we realized that they were all converging around the same technical approach to doing AI. Like they were investing hundreds of millions of dollars and hundreds of ML engineers building out these AI platforms internally. And they looked really different from what most other people were doing as far as AI goes. And they were using it for pretty much every major AI use case. So it wasn't like they were building out this you know, big infrastructure and it was just for serving ads. They were using it for search and recommendations, for personalization, for content moderation, for customer analytics. And it was all the same infrastructure. And so that kind of you know, power and versatility and seeing the proof point at scale was uh, enough for us to say, well, is there some version of this you know, scaled way down <laughs> that we can deploy at Slack and see if we can find similar success with it. And so, so that's what we did. Um, and I'm happy to, to get into the technical weeds of it, but, but basically this approach um, makes heavy use of uh, what are called foundation models or pre-trained models generally. And it removes a lot of the kind of barriers to entry that, that organizations uh, often encounter. So long story short, you know, we, we deployed this thing at Slack. It was wildly effective, um, just a, a sea change in terms of quality metrics and other things. Um, one thing that was kind of remarkable about it, aside from it, how impactful it was, was that it uh, didn't involve training any machine learning models. And I think if you come from a traditional machine learning background, then you think like, oh, I have some new use case. Let me train a model to solve it. And actually, that's not how modern AI works necessarily. Often you can uh, address use cases without training any models at all. Um, and that's just very different um, and, and changes the equation as far as what kinds of companies could potentially do AI? What do they need in order to be successful with it? And really the only reason we were able to, to do this successfully, I think at Slack, is that we had um, really talented ML engineers and we had enough existing infrastructure that we didn't have to build a whole lot additional in order to get that baseline out the door. But the observation that, that we made was that most companies don't have those two things. They don't have much or any pre-existing modern AI infrastructure. And they often don't have any machine learning team, or if they do, they're either understaffed or they don't really have the skill sets that modern AI requires. And so the idea behind Graft is we are taking this modern AI infrastructure that all the top AI companies are converging around, distilling it down to its essence and packaging it up to remove those skill and infrastructural barriers. Very, very interesting. Um, thanks for the for the context and the backstory and all that. Curious to, uh, you touched on it uh, briefly, but I'd love to uh, double down on it. You said like you learned a lot when you were doing that um, that battery analytics uh, startup. I'm curious to uh, find out from you, like what did you learn back then and what are you doing or how have you applied what you've learned into the graph business? Yeah, so one thing that... Uh, was really salient from that experience. I had an amazing co-founder, um, Jacob Leverage, who's now a co-founder at a, a company called Observe. Um, and I, I couldn't imagine coming out of that experience, ever founding a company with people who I didn't admire and think were extraordinary. You know, I'll, I'll hear, I'll see on forums or hear people talk about like, Oh, I'm looking for a co-founder. Uh, I'm technical. So I'm looking for a business person. 
you know, and they think of it as a kind of, uh, you know, there are slots to fill in the founding team. And so you put a person in that slot and great, you're done. But a co-founding relationship is a, a pretty close one and can endure for uh, many years longer than some relationships I've been in in the past, uh, you know, in a non-professional capacity. And so the idea of going into one of those with, with somebody who, who I didn't think was an extraordinary person, who I didn't like spending time with, who I didn't think would be willing to pick up the multitude of unglamorous tasks that starting a company will require someone to pick up. Um, yeah, it, that, that was a pretty salient experience for me. Um, so I uh, have replicated that at, at Graft and, and brought in, in fact, five co-founders, all of whom I could uh, speak at length about because uh, I think they're great. Um, there was also some lessons about the kind of company that I wanted to start. I mentioned already that, you know, selling an app for, for a buck a pop, even if you do it, you know, many hundreds of thousands of times, that's still not, I think, uh, the type of business that, that excites me. You know, someone clicks buy in a store and I never interact with them, right? Like they, they get their analytics and I see metrics, I see some numbers, but I don't get to uh, build a relationship where the the strength of that relationship is in some way tied to the success that those customers have with the product, that just felt a little bit distant for me. And I think if you have you know a million people using a product, there's going to be that distance. But B two B kinds of uh, sales motions can be a lot more personal, both in terms of the the actual selling, but then the the long term relationship as you help them be successful and see longer term value, identify opportunities to solve new use cases, and all of that. Um, and so B two C, especially selling an app, um, it was just not for me. It's a great business if you are the type of person who gets really excited about like churning out these apps and getting people addicted and gamifying things and what have you. That's just not what I was into. Um, and that's more of a personal lesson than a, an actionable business lesson for everyone. Um, I, I think another maybe more subtle one, um, you know, we, we launched a, a sort of research version of this product when I was still in the AMP lab. And I, I thought at the time I was a grad student, right? I was trying to write papers so that I could apply for faculty jobs and <laughs> things like that. And so I thought I would have to pressure my friends to use this app so I could get enough data to then go and write a paper. Um, and I had a friend at the time who worked at TechCrunch. Um, and I told him what I was working on. Um, and he was like, oh, you should come by the office and like we should dig into it. And he ended up writing an article about it that got just a huge amount of attention. Um, in the first 24 hours after the article came out, we had more than 100,000 people you know, using the app. Um, part, part of the lesson here was that we hadn't thought about that possibility. <laughs> like we, we were a bunch of grad students who were building this, this app. We hadn't thought about what if we need to scale the back end, which was on AWS. Uh, what if we need to scale that to 100,000 people tomorrow? That, that just was not a conversation we ever had. And as a result, like a lot of things started to break. Um, the lab director uh, at the time, Mike Franklin, sort of pulled me aside and said, like, hey, if we don't rein in the AWS spend, we're going to bankrupt the lab in like two months. So, you know, <laughs> I got to do something about it. And so I think in general, the, the lesson was uh, to sort of plan for that growth and to be um, to have guardrails in place to manage it. So, you know, if even if 100,000 people showed up tomorrow and said that they wanted to use Graft, we know that we're not ready to handle that kind of customer scale because we don't have self-serve, et cetera. 
yet. And so we we don't just open the floodgates and say, hey, whoever wants, come on in, you know, we'll solve the problems later, because I think that created not a great customer experience. Um, so that was one lesson, uh, but, you know. Great stuff, Adam. Thank you. Um, so just to come back to uh, GraphChair, so um, I guess uh, I, I know you touched on it about making AI accessible because of the lack of a modern AI infrastructure and skills and things like that. Um, you guys are looking to kind of really solve that problem. Um, so how do you solve it? Like, and or maybe before we get into the meat and the potatoes, let's actually go back a step. Every single starter founder, legit, dude, like if I speak to 100, probably 97 have some kind of AI or ML capability. I'm not even shitting you. And then yesterday I saw, um, I think it was a, a Jasper.ai mm-hmm. just closed another fund, funding round. They've valued it like one and a half billion now in this market. Go figure. They're not even, they're actually using OpenServe, I believe, uh, their infrastructure and, pack, you know, packaging it up to, you know, to provide, to write copy for <laughs> people who can't yeah. write copy. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it's ridiculous. Like, one and a half billion is, well, you know, it's a very interesting space to be. Um, but it seems to me like there, there is a lot of I- uh, initiatives in democratizing access to AI and ML and things like this. So, I'm curious, like, if so many startup founders have this capability, Where's the gap here? Like in terms of like there's a startups, like there's a hundred startups. Most of them have some kind of AI ML capability. So it's probably not the startup community. Maybe it is in some cases, but largely not. So is this a small business thing? You know what I mean? Like, is it a small business? I've got five people. And and if it is, who's the customer? What are they so, doing? Yeah. So great question. We We say that we're bringing the AI of the 1% to the 99%. And that 99% is not just small businesses. This goes up through mid-market and even a lot of large companies. So it's not so much about the size. It's about whether they have production, modern AI infrastructure. And I think if you if you sort of think about the landscape, there's a ton of ML companies. And there are three dimensions in which Graft is unique. So the, the first is that it's modern AI infrastructure. There are lots of ML platforms. Most of them are using more classical methods where the focus is around building models end-to-end and fiddling with the ML machinery, like hyperparameters and whatnot. Um, They're not making use of foundation models and all of the technologies surrounding it, like active learning and so on. So being modern AI is important. This is what the top AI companies are converging around. So most companies are not doing that, even in the ML space. Um, the, The second is that we are targeting a persona that is not an ML engineer. So most of these other companies are building tools or building interfaces for other ML practitioners. And that is a, a vanishingly small persona when you zoom out <laughs> and look at all of the industry. Um, and in particular, those with the skill sets that are required for modern AI are being hoarded by those same top AI companies. So they're really expensive to hire. It's hard to draw them away from those big paychecks. And then the the third is that we're building complete production AI infrastructure as opposed to a component. So a lot of these other companies that you're talking about, they'll say, you know, oh, you know, if you if you've generated uh, a model, we'll host it for you and and do and serve predictions from it, or uh, you know, we'll we'll help you clean your data, or we'll help you label your data, or we'll help you do observability on your models in production. There are like 20 different pieces to a complete production AI infrastructure solution. And Graft is building the whole thing 
Because again, if you don't have that ML engineer persona, if you don't have enough of them, it doesn't matter if you have all of the pieces, you can't assemble them into a production system and then be able to run that thing reliably and maintain it uh, in production. And so it's a complete system targeting non-ML personas. If you're an ML engineer, you're, you're welcome to use it. And I think you'll, you'll find that it's, it's great, but you don't have to be that persona to get that value. Um, yeah, and we're doing modern AI, which is uh, not something that a lot of companies are doing. Um, it's interesting that positioning, right? Modern AI infrastructure, because it seems to me like if you're doing anything in AI, it's pretty modern. <laughs> it's all relative, I suppose. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's really, really modern. Okay, no, 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 it's just modern. Like we're like the three X modern. Can see it where is that's a, It is an incredibly fast moving field. I, even as someone who is in the field, you know, will be excited about some, you know, new technology that gets announced one day. And then it seems like a week later, that's already been superseded by something that's even further along than that one. Mm. And I think some of these really big investments that you're seeing are a response to excitement and hype. So, you know, they'll, they'll build a relatively simple API, open it up to the world. Lots of people pile on because they all want to try it. Like they want to type some text and see an image get generated. Like I have used those things, for example, that's fun. Um, and I think that's where you see these large investments coming is because they can point to those, uh, that evidence of traction and say, look, we got, you know, 100,000 people are using it. I, mm -hmm. I don't know that that's necessarily sustainable traction or a defensible business. Um, but there's a lot of excitement around it because I do think that those kinds of technologies are going to have a huge impact on industry and society. Um, so I, I think it's right to be excited about them. Um, but whether or not that's a good investment, I'll, I'll leave to the experts. Mm -hmm. So just on that, so um, I was chatting to uh, Nathan Stevenson. He runs a, an AI-enabled platform called Forward Lane, a startup rather, in um, in New York. And he sent me the link to uh, this article uh, from TechCrunch where, where Jasper is now valued at $1.5 billion. And we were talking about like GPT-3 technology and how effective it is. Um, and so he – because I was – and where I'm going with this is use cases. So – he said, um, he was like, no, don't do AI. And I'm like, well, maybe you should. Anyway, we got into this whole debate. Um, and, uh, and we were talking about Jasper and like, and what you're saying around like modern AI, right? Like, so I registered with Jasper and then try to do something. Like, let's just say it was like, write me a 300 word article on scaling a startup. And it took like, you know, five minutes, obviously it does its thing, crunches a whole bunch of data, comes back and regurgitates, you know, some, some form of a computer driven article. And if I were to put a percent on modern article, as in other words, completeness, effectiveness of the end product using Jasper, even though it's valued at one and a half billion, I would probably put it at about a three. So I would still need to put a lot of time and effort. And that's why, you know, if you think about automating manual tasks and things like this, and even just like some low level content, like an article, you would expect a modern AI platform to, uh, to create a better product at the end of the day for something simple, by the way, like copy words, right? Which is what it's based on. Um, and so, um, you're creating, let's just maybe juxtapose that story with modern AI application, right? Or infrastructure. So what in your perspective is a modern, well, it, what is in your, from your perspective is a use case for a modern AI infrastructure like graph? Like what is that? Where do you see, or how do you see that playing out? Who's using it and in what context? 
Great. So one of the reasons that, again, we started Graft is that we saw these AI companies using modern AI infrastructure for almost every AI use case sort of throughout the company. So, you know, at, at one of these companies, who I won't, won't name, that infrastructure is serving more than a trillion API requests a day because it's not just one team using it. Um, and in another one, I think there are 90 teams internally that are going to be customers of that infrastructure. So to list out some of those use cases, obviously search and recommendations um, are at the top of kind of any AI hit list. People have a plethora of data and need to find stuff in it, either for themselves or for their customers. Um, content moderation comes up a ton. So uh, this can be for internal uses, like identifying you know, situations with internal comms where maybe you, know, you need to jump in and, and mediate um, or any kind of user contributed content like a help forum or comments on a product catalog, reviews, et cetera. Um, customer analytics is another big one. So a lot of people do BI analytics, but almost exclusively with structured data. Um, you know, I, the analogy I like to give is you know, if you're just looking at structured data, you might be counting how many times a customer called support, but only if you look at the content of that call, the unstructured data of that recording, do you get a sense of what they talked about? What was the tone on the call? You know, how much time did support speak versus the other person versus the customer, et cetera. There's a ton of rich information there. Market analytics is another big one. So People are talking all the time on things like social media about your product or your brand or your employees. And this is an opportunity to make use of all of that data for a variety of things, ranging from customer success to product uh, research, et cetera. Personalization is another big one. So there are a lot of, there's a lot of information about me as a user that one could leverage to make the product experience better and so on down the list. So. You know, to, to give even more sort of uh, uh, sort of outside the box examples, one of the things that's really exciting for me about Graft is how easy it is to build use cases that have never been built before, just by giving some examples. So, you know, for for instance, uh, we have a customer who is uh, using Graft to uh, interpret dreams. So there's an example of a, of a customer who would never have been able to build out their own modern AI infrastructure. No one's ever going to build them point solution, but they can use modern AI now, thanks to Graft. Um, I got to use Graft uh, for a sort of non-professional use case. Um, I had a friend reach out and say, hey, we're helping with a search and rescue of a lost hiker. Um, you know, we have a bunch of aerial photos. Do you, and they didn't ask about graph. They were like, hey, do you know of anyone who could help us like analyze these photos? I know you work in the AI space. And I was like, hey, we can do that. Like <laughs> send them over. And so we, we were very, in a matter of an hour or so, once I got the photos, loaded it into graph, ran some quick analytics and, and helped out the, the search and rescue team. And so I, I think there's the these core use cases that everyone thinks about because people are building point solutions for it, or it's like, you know, it, it's common enough that almost every organization wants some flavor of it. But Graph creates this opportunity to go after this long tail of use cases where non-ML practitioners who have a bunch of unstructured data and problems they want to solve on it can just pick up a product and solve that use case using the most advanced ML techniques. 
So um, let's say you found you, well, maybe there's two parts to this. The first one is when should you start using AI so it isn't like an AI washing thing? It's like, well, we've got AI on the Map Round show, you know, <laughs> and then we produce shitty articles that no one cares about. You know what I mean? Like um, there, there is a lot of lip service to this. Um, but uh, so maybe let's start with that. When should a small business, irrespective of, you know, what they do, is it, is it, kind of, is it like you have unstructured data? Is that the thing? Is that what is that when you should start? Like, I think having unstructured data is maybe a, a good prerequisite, but I think it's not sufficient. There, there always needs to be a business need. So, uh, doing AI or blockchain or whatever because it's it's hot and exciting, I think, is never a good reason to do it. it might satisfy your curiosity, but I don't think that's a good business case. Um, so, there has to be some problem that you're solving, some capability that you want to unlock. Um, and that's going to be very specific to the business. So, you know, why, why a company wants a particular feature to be launched and knows that the only way to launch that feature and have it be good is to make use of some of this unstructured data. Um, that's going to be particular to that company. Um, but business need and data sufficiency are, I think, a good starting point. Okay. Um, and so how does, how much does this cost? Like, how do you commercialize something that really is infrastructure based is it consumption is it a license and consumption or just volume based like how does it work yeah so it's consumption based but we also sell enterprise licenses so the idea is that you have this pay as you go on ramp that scales with value so the more you use the platform the more you pay at some point it just kind of makes sense for you to get an enterprise license just from a cost perspective um, those enterprise licenses give you discounts on the usage dedicated csm that sort of thing and so if you're using Graft at scale in production, you should probably buy a license. Um, but the consumption-based model gives you this opportunity to try it out for your various use cases and see kind of where it's effective and where you want to invest. Um, then just because um, we have now I have to ask you because you keep using the word models. When you say foundational models, for someone that's curious, has a lot of unstructured data, and it's like, cool, I'm in, I'm, I get, I now understand what, what graphs about, but I don't understand the model piece and its application in what I would use graph for, you know, as an entrepreneur or a startup or an enterprise company. Um, what, what is a foundational model? Is it like different to a different type, like a scientific model? Why do these models matter? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey there, I know being an entrepreneur can be a very lonely experience. You sometimes get stuck, don't you? Well, if you're like me, being stuck sucks. But what if you could access the minds of over 850 CEOs who have built companies generating billions of dollars in revenue and access all of that knowledge in a fraction of a second? Well, the good news is you can literally do that today. What my team have built is Matt Brown AI. It is trained on all the interviews, over 850 of them that I've done to date, all my books, all the knowledge capital that has been generated over the last 10 years right here on the Map Brown Show. And you can get access to all of that right now for free. So how do you get access to this? Well, head on over to mapbrownshow.com and at the top you'll see community. Hit that link, sign up, it's absolutely free and you'll be given instant access to Matt Brown AI and a community of over 100,000 subscribers. So one way to think about it is uh, as, a, as a shortcut. So uh, I, there's a lot to say about them, but I'll, I'll describe it this way. 
classical ML would be you just have some data and you need a bunch of labels and you're going to learn from scratch some model that's going to predict those labels, essentially. So here are a bunch of pictures. I'm going to label a few thousand of them as cute or not. And I want you to build a model that's going to predict those labels. And classically, you might do a lot of manual feature engineering of like, oh, let me look, try to do a fur detector and see if there's any fur in this photo, because I think that's going to be a good indicator for cuteness or big eyes or something like this, right? Like you might do a lot of that manually. And then you would pick amongst a long list of potential models to use to actually do that prediction, like algorithms to use to build the models. There are a lot of, of parameters and hyperparameters that you might need to fiddle with and so on. And eventually you're gonna get this model for that one use case. If you then go, first of all, you need a lot of labels for this. Like if you think about images, they have lots of numbers in them. That's essentially what they are is like, you know, if it's a million pixels in an image and there's three color channels, it's like three million numbers. And you have to learn whether those three million numbers somehow combine in some way to be cute. That's hard. The idea of foundation models is that you, you sort of pre-train those models on a bunch of data so that when you go to learn for a particular task, you need far fewer labeled examples because it already understands a lot of the basic structure and semantics of the underlying data type. So for instance, if I wanted to uh, train a model to distinguish between oak trees and elm trees, it really helps if I start with a model that already knows trees, right? I have to teach it a lot less about the world and about interpreting images and so on if I'm starting from that point. Mm. And the point of these foundation models is for say English text or images and later for things like audio and video and so on. And in just recently multimodal ones. So like images plus captions and so on. And you essentially just show them lots and lots of examples and it learns that structure and semantics so that when you go to try to solve one particular use case, you, you have a huge head start. And these models therefore are often really, really big. <laughs> so historically you might train a model on your laptop and it's like, takes a couple of minutes and then you're done. These foundation models are, you know, sometimes hundreds of billions of parameters and, um, you know, take tens of millions of dollars in some cases to train. But the good news is you train one of them once, like a GPT-3, and now you can use it across a host of different use cases. And in some cases, you don't need any additional labeled data at all. So if your use case looks like similarity search, the foundation model might be sufficient. So you can essentially use the foundation model to build a representation of the underlying data that has this property where you can kind of do a simple math operation, like look for nearest neighbors and find things that are semantically similar or related. And this is how a lot of semantic search or similarity search or recommendations work is they just leverage that representation. And in those cases, you don't need any labeled data. You can just start with a pile of unstructured data, pass it through one of these foundation models and already have the ability to kind of search it semantically, which is really powerful. So if just to repeat back, so this is about time to value, basically. I have this use case in mind. I don't want to have to dick around trying to figure out models and what to train them on. There's like a core set of foundational models that are universally applicable to, I don't know, who knows how many use cases. And so why I come to Graft is to, is to shorten my time to value in the application of AI infrastructure. Time to value is definitely a huge part of it. 
I think for some organizations, it's more than just time to value. It's about the, the data sufficiency to tackle the use case at all. So for a lot of companies, they might not have billions of <laughs> pieces of unstructured data or millions of labels. In fact, I think almost none of them do. And so if they didn't have a foundation model to start from, they might not even have enough data or enough labels to ever build a model, no matter how clever they are. They just don't have the data or the computational resources to go and build that model. And so it's also a, a sort of capability unlock for a lot of these organizations. And if, you're, and if you're sort of talking about foundation models, I think the way to think about Graft is as all of the infrastructure you need to operationalize those production models. So a lot of the companies building those production, or sorry, those foundation models will provide APIs for, you know, generating predictions from them or getting things called embeddings or other things. And those sort of these like simple call and response kind of relationships. But that's not production infrastructure, right? There's no ability to, you know, uh, have the those models somehow participate in the labeling process to help guide those efforts. There's no monitoring of these things in production to make sure that they maintain certain SLAs. If you want to do any kinds of end-to-end -end optimizations for reliability or performance or security, it doesn't help with any of those things. And so Graft is, is building all of that other stuff that actually, if you want to use a foundation model to solve production problems and have trust in it, that you would need to build or use Graft. Mm -hmm. Sure, dude. Crazy stuff, man. It's amazing what you're doing. <clears throat> um, so you. what's your vision here? You're clearly a visionary and... Um, what what is like the hope or of or maybe we better said like what is your vision for the contribution that you want to make to the community of business around the world through Graft? Um, so maybe you can help me. I'm starting to try to coin a term. Oh, really? uh, called uh, societal spaghettification. <laughs> so uh, there are all these statistics about AI companies. Um, that, that show that they're just more successful than companies who are not using these technologies, who are not data-driven. They have something like, you know, 20 plus times greater success acquiring customers, 70% more revenue per employee, and they're reinvesting those profits back into AI initiatives. And so what you end up with is this sort of, you know, this stretching of, of the landscape where there are a few companies who are hoarding all of the ML engineering talent and the AI scientists and so on and reinvesting it to get further and further ahead. And the 99% increasingly are left behind. Um, in that 99% is probably every nonprofit that you love, every non-governmental organization that's doing great work to make society better and make the world better they don't have access to these technologies that could make them so much more successful in their mission. And not just that, there are lots of you know, medium-sized companies and small businesses that build products that I love and use. I want more of that, I want better of that. And we view this as the way to address that 99% and make sure they're not left behind. I don't wanna live in a world where five companies do all of the AI and we just have to you know, uh, subsist on whatever gets uh, passed down from them. And so I want to live in a world where everyone's empowered to make use of these modern techniques and, and be successful in the best possible way. I got 99 problems, but AI ain't one. <laughs> That'll be our next uh, tagline. We'll, we'll try it out. I know, right? You should have 99 problems, just not AI. Like that yeah. shouldn't be a problem. <laughs> uh, that's amazing, man. Well, a spaghettification, probably I'm not sold. 
but uh, uh, I'll, all right. I'll, I'll put I'll put some CPU cycles into that one. Well, do you do you know the the origin of the term spaghettification? Because that's not no. the part I made up. Oh, this right. is uh, this is how you. Uh, this is nothing to do with the topic at hand. But this is how you die if you fall into a black hole. So <laughs> so as, as you get near the singularity, the difference in in gravity, like space time, is so warped and stretched at such short distances. You you essentially get spaghettified at the atomic level until, until you're basically just molecule by molecule falling into this singularity yeah. but it's like that but for society so uh-huh. um, well yeah. all right well i'll uh, go try to get some traction on that on my own i guess so. adam no no don't like i love it when you go full nerd it's amazing <laughs> that's so, my secret i'm always full nerd i know right god just how to make me feel so inferior IQ level. Oh my God. Um, so let's, uh, let's talk about, uh, you've obviously raised a lot of money, um, doing this thing, building this thing. And I, I keep having this conversation with founders cause startups are always in a raise. Um, and you know, better than most people where the market's at around, uh, you know, it's not as liquid as it was. Like, I think the last number I heard was like, 34% VC capital, total capital lent has dropped in year on year. Um, and so uh, if, if a startup founder is always in a raise, what's your advice to him or her looking, they've got an AI product, wherever it is, um, they're looking to raise money in the current market. Do you have any advice for them on, do they go ahead? Cause they're not going to get the same valuation that they were 12 months ago. Let's put Jasper aside for a moment. <laughs> um, but uh, what what have you learned about raising money in a market like this? Um, and what's your advice? Even if the reality is that you're always raising, I think if you structure your business or the vision or the mission or anything else around that reality, then you're less likely to be successful at doing those raises. So if you have a really compelling vision then you're more likely to be successful raising and hiring people, like building a great team and, and maintaining focus as you build. Uh, if you build a great team of people, then that will also help you raise later on. But that's also just like how you would responsibly build this business in the first place. And if you focus on execution of the product and methodically testing go-to-market and all of the kind of fundamentals all of those things will make you more successful fundraising incidentally. But by the way, you've also just built a better business that way. And so I think thinking about, you know, what does it mean to achieve this vision? Like what would be required and make sure that the actions that you're taking, the steps that you're taking are in line with that. And so when we go to investors, I'm just sort of talking about, you know, this is our vision. This is the team we brought together to solve it. This is the product for the progress that we've made on execution. And, and they're fun conversations. Like I'm, I'm excited by where we're headed. I'm really uh, honored by the team that's come together around that vision. Um, and all of those things were done without thinking about fundraising. But investors do like those things. And I think a lot of the pullback you're seeing is a pullback toward these fundamentals where they're, they're looking for your ability to actually build a, a sustainable long-term business. Mm-hmm. And that has less to do with capitalizing on hype. Yeah, and, and as you've seen, it's not that you can't capitalize on hype. That is still a valid path if you happen to be doing something in a space that's really exciting. So, for example, I would argue that uh, ML infrastructure is actually not the sexy AI topic anymore because a lot of these earlier companies built these components 
that most organizations weren't able to use because they didn't have a big ML team and the, all the other pieces they would need to put it into production. And so enthusiasm around ML infrastructure has kind of cooled off, but now generative AI is hot. And so you still see very big rounds. I mean, just like a couple of days before Jasper, Stability AI also raised, you know, 100 million plus, I think. Um, and so th there are still big checks being written at, at really high, I don't want to say crazy because I think that's that's a judgment call, but but very high valuations because that is the hot topic now. It's not you know where it was six to nine months ago, and that's fine for Graft. Uh, I think we we are uh, doing something fundamentally different than those previous ML infrastructure companies, and we're not really relying on that hype. Um, so that's fine for us. But yeah. Mm. So speaking of hype, did you know that uh, startups who are featured on the MapRound show? they are 10 times more likely to raise capital than if they were on any other podcasts in the world. Do you know that? Why do you think I'm here, Matt? Dude, no, I, 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 <laughs> the hype is kidding. real. The hype train is real, people. Get on board. <laughs> I mean, if that's true, it should be in big letters over your head during no, every call. <laughs> I, don't, I don't believe in selling all the time. You know, you must give first. You must give. Um, so I want to have a bit of fun with you, Adam. So um, you've obviously been around the block with this uh, particular startup. Uh, and you've uh, failed a lot. You've learned a lot. You've had a lot of success. Um, if I were to give you the keys to the Map Round Show time machine and go and ask you to go back to yourself on day one uh, and give yourself one piece of advice about building Graft, what would that be? Oh, man. Um, I Here's the problem with answering that question for me, why, why it's difficult for me to answer it. M my intuition is to go back and tell myself not to make some mistake. You know, something that, that I tried and that didn't work. And the, the reason that I hesitate to go back in time and change that is because every mistake that we've made, every quote unquote failure was something that we learned from. We always try to figure out what did we get out of this failure that we didn't have before. It's some piece of knowledge about the product or the market or the way that we should talk about it or whatever. There was always something that we made us better as a result of it. So if I go back and I remove that, I also kind of remove the learnings that we took away from it. And that makes me really hesitant to do it. I don't, I can't think of any mistakes that we made where we didn't learn something where it's like, no, that just sucked. And I wish we hadn't done that. Um, you know, I, I think there, uh, maybe the easiest one is just candidates who, we, we had gotten somewhere into the recruiting process with and realized that they were definitely not going to be a good fit. And we could have saved time by just avoiding those conversations in the first place. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I think there's no way for, for that to be sort of actionable moving forward. Like that's a very individual thing. That's why you do interviews. Um, but yeah, I think the there are some people who look really impressive on paper and may even be extraordinary engineers or leaders or what have you but they don't have uh, the mindset to work at an early stage startup. You know, like you've said, we've been around the block in my mind for so early still, like mm -hmm. we've only raised a pre-seed, you know, it's, it's still early days. Um, but I, I think it would be nice to go back and maybe save some time by not interviewing some of these people who I think it was very unlikely they were ever going to leave their, you know, $1.2 million a year job at some fang company um, to come work at a startup making substantially less than that, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah. no, I wish I, get, I could pay them that kind of money. But No, no, yeah. I get that. It's not, it's not for everyone. I'm curious to ask you this, though. All things being equal, right? Would you, do you prefer to learn from success or failure? 
I don't think I learn as much from success. That sounds more fun. I, if I learned as much from success as failure, I would definitely choose success. That sounds like uh, you, you get, it's a double win, right? You, you get the success and you learn something. That's great. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I, I sometimes talk about uh, startups as experimentation engines and uh, it's not an experimentation engine. If everything works, that's just an execution engine. And that's what you get to do at the later stages where you figure it out, go to market and product market fit and all those nice things. Um, early on, it's about iterating and learning as much as you can with each iteration. Um, yeah. Um, are you thinking about an exit? Have you thought about it yet? No, I do think about taking a vacation at some point. That sounds nice. <laughs> Um, but no, I think in the same way that uh, you don't end up making good short-term decisions if you're thinking about the next fundraise. Similarly, I don't think you make good decisions if you go into this thinking that you're going to be selling to some company later on. Um, in general, I think uh, reducing optionality is the reason that that's not a great idea. You know, if you build your company with the idea that there's a specific buyer <laughs> and we're just going to set ourselves up to be acquired by this specific company, you can sometimes you can play that game. But if it doesn't work, right? If there's some other company that ends up getting acquired and solving a similar strategic purpose, what's your plan now? And if you built your company without thinking that you're going to be the next AI giant, that you're going to be a billion dollar company, um, then you've made a lot of sort of taken a lot of shortcuts. And and like you know, at Graph, we're we are planning this for the long haul, right? We've filed patents and you know, passing compliance audits and all of the things that you would do if you were expecting to be working at Graft in 10 years and having, you know, 10,000 customers or 20,000 customers or whatever. That's amazing, man. So look, um, Adam, it's been a real privilege having you here, buddy. But uh, one more question and I'll let you go. Uh, why do you do what you do? Like what gets you out of bed in the morning? I genuinely believe in the mission. Um, I really do want to live in a world where everyone can use these technologies to be successful. Um, I don't always think about the mission. Sometimes I'm just thinking about the, the workday. Um, and what gets me excited and passionate there is the team that I get to work with. Um, we're, we're still small. We're 18 people. Um, but it's an amazing team. Um, and I could, I could talk your ear off about not just how technically brilliant they are, um, but also just what wonderful people they are. I like you know, we went on a company rafting trip just so I can make the G raft pun. So we got like graft branded inflatable rafts and floated down the Russian river together. And, uh, you know, knowing that I get to, even when things are hard and even when there are disagreements, work with people who I admire and, and like a lot. Um, I think that is, that makes it a lot easier to get out of bed, especially when my kids have kept me up late. So just a funny story and then we'll finish up. But uh, my last company had 55 people. And uh, I hated it. I was like, oh. this fucking sucks. Like it got really, it was just, I went from doing what I loved every day to like now I'm managing this thing and like humans and like not core cap, you know, not part of my core competency uh, set at all. And so I've, I kind of very quickly was starting to, <clears throat> excuse me, like um, fall out of love with the business. Um, and I decided then and there, like you said, you like, 14 people, 18 people, 18, 18, yep. 18 yeah. Um, that, that, that's like the, that's the size for me. Cause I can have like 18 people around my house for lunch. Cause if I, if I can't get the whole company there, it's too many people. 
because things change, you know, um, and just, you know, it's a thing. And I think with, with what you're doing, my hope for you guys and my sense would be is that you guys are going to have a really big business and a very, like a small team, quote unquote, you know what I mean? Um, and that's, that's the dream, right? Just have this massive business, but a small team that you love. I appreciate that. And yeah, we, we certainly hope to, to keep the kind of the culture and the spirit um, that we're currently enjoying alive as we grow. I think that is hard. Um, and it's just a, it, there are many things in building a business that require extra effort and time and energy resources. But if you don't do them, they will cost even more of those things later on. So, you know, building a strong culture, you know, working on um, bringing the right people onto the team um, in a lot of different senses. Th those are all things that are just uh, that require those resources. And early stage, it's really easy to convince yourself that I, I'm in a hurry. Like I'm, I need to get this done so that I can do, you know, raise this round or whatever. Um, but the shortcuts that you take early on, they compound really quickly, especially team related and culture related things. Um, and so I, I hope you're right that we, we, become successful and large and uh, maintain all, all of the things that I love today about graphs, uh, even in that future world. So thank awesome. you for that. Anytime, buddy. Adam, great to have you here. Thanks, everybody, for checking in, and we'll see you all again soon. Cheers. Thank you. Ever wanted to become a best-selling author? Well, I'm in the influence business and I work with business owners and CEOs and business leaders to help them scale their influence. And we do this as a team by helping you to become a best-selling author, sought-after speaker and industry influencer in only 30 days. My team and I have developed a system that delivers a best-selling book and a launch campaign 300% faster and 50% less cost than anyone else in North America. This system is incredibly efficient. One of my clients Haiku went from a 2% share of voice globally to an 11% share of voice globally in only seven days. If you'd like more information, head on over to showworksmedia.com for more. That is showworks with an x.com.